0: Howdy, church. Morning. Good to see you. Thank you, Larry, for hosting this morning. I pushed Larry so far out of his comfort zone, just said, hey, man, will you host one of our gatherings? We, um, we, part of the vision behind some of, uh, some of our hosting is we want to give men and women of our community an opportunity to serve you by calling you to worship, by inviting you to worship, but we also want to give you the opportunity to get to know them, to, to, to see some of their personality, to go, oh, that's who that is. I keep hearing that name. Now I know their face. We want to build and to cultivate a church community where everyone is, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, using their gifts to serve the church. And so that's what we're doing in the mornings. We, uh, we're not playing games here. Said this in our uh, in our prayer gathering this morning. We don't. We, we want to be serious about the gospel. We want to be serious about God, and we don't want to take ourselves that seriously. Does that make sense? The difference. So this morning we 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 center on God's word. We sing together. We'll we'll take communion. We've invited and called one another to worship together. There is a lot that is that is occurring and going on in our gatherings. We're in Matthew's gospel. If you've got a black Bible around the room or one of the, the Matthew journals, we need to get some more of those out on the table. I don't know if, if anybody saw those in a bin underneath the connect table, but I don't think they're there right now. If you know if they're there, will you put those, somebody grab some of those Matthew ESV scripture journals and put them out on the table? Um, that, I think that would be helpful. Those are our gift to you uh, this morning if you don't already have one. I think it's on page 760 in the Black Bibles around the room, or Matthew chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Just right out of the gates, the topic is a wee bit heavy. Uh, it's go, it's, the topic is on lust and adultery, okay? So there are going to be some themes uh, that are going to poke us. There are going to be some themes here that, that touch us um, in a way that we may squirm a bit and we may want to get away from. I want you to keep this in view, though, as we begin. Uh, the Apostle Paul, as he, as he in, in his epistle to the Romans, his letter to the Roman church, he explained the gospel. He explained how the wrath of God is coming for people who reject God. He explained in chapter 7 how he wrestles and doesn't do what he knows he should. He does what he knows he shouldn't. And he has this exclamation point at the end of chapter 7 where he says, you can just feel the Apostle Paul's frustration. He says, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who Jesus Christ calls his own, for those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. So that's where I want to set up this morning as we talk about this subject of of lust and adultery. If you are in Christ, he is inviting you to deal with your sin. He is inviting you to honesty before him, and he is assuring you that he has come to save you in spite of you in spite of our best efforts, right? It's a bit of a primer. I know, just kind of set things up here. Uh, Matthew chapter five, verse 27 through 30 this morning. Jesus comes and he says, "'You have heard it was said, "'You shall not commit adultery. "'But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman "'with lustful intent has already committed adultery "'with her in his heart.'" If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. This is the word of Jesus Christ. He comes in right out of the gate saying, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. Matthew is signaling Jesus' authority here. The prophets in the Old Testament, they would say, thus says the Lord. But Jesus comes not saying, thus says the Lord. Jesus comes saying, I say to you. The the big idea here is, in, in some ways, is that God has given us our New Testaments to bring us face to face with the authority of Jesus. And so, over the next series of weeks, we're going to hear that he's teaching on these chunks. Like this week, it's lust and adultery. Next week, it is divorce. And from then on, Jesus will continue to say, You've heard it said in your Old Testaments, in the Hebrew Scriptures, but I say to you, Jesus was not just a good teacher, he was not only a miracle worker. Though he was a prophet, Jesus was not a mere prophet. By saying, you have heard it was said, but I say, what Jesus is doing functionally is he's correcting faulty interpretations of the law. These faulty interpretations of the law have long been held and long been taught by the teachers of the law, the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And so Jesus is not correcting the law. He is correcting people in error. That's what he's doing with these corrective statements. You've heard it said, but I say to you. And so last week, we looked at Jesus' teaching on anger and murder, and we recognized that unrighteous anger is the little brother of murder. Anger is it held long in the heart is the seed of murder. Murder and anger are siblings in the same family. No one murders who isn't first harboring a good deal of unrighteous anger. And Jesus' bigger point in all of that was that having the right external behaviors is not even what he's after in the first place. Having all of the things tidy on the outside. Um, A theologian named D.A. Carson, he's one of the founders of the Gospel Coalition. He said, sin is not merely a matter of actions and deeds. It is something within the heart that leads to the action. It's not, sin is not merely a matter of our actions and deeds, something, but rather something within that leads to it coming out. So what Jesus is doing is he's looking, he, he's looking to us, he's looking for us to see the depth of our sin, to see it, to be honest about it, and also to respond by cultivating good, malleable, humble hearts before him. When the the heart, when you're and I, when, when our heart is captivated, I'm using that word captivated on purpose because I'm going to use, I'm going to bring forward some language of slavery here in a little while. When the heart is captivated by God's mercy and goodness, something results, a vigorous, healthy way of life is what follows. When our hearts are captivated by the mercy and goodness of Jesus Christ. So here are I've I had 5 points last week. I've got 3 points this week. They're they're really uh, pretty simple right up out of the text. My first point is like anger and murder, lust and adultery are also siblings in the same family. My second point that I'll get to this morning is there are some consequences for our lust. It leads us into slavery. And then my third point is remedy. Is there a remedy? Is there real freedom from our slavery? Yes, there is, and it requires drastic action, according to Jesus' words. So Jesus comes right out of the gates and he says, You shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. That is the seventh of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament. You can find the Ten Commandments right at the beginning of Exodus chapter 20. It's the uh, you shall not commit adultery, seventh of the ten commandments. But there's also a tenth commandment, and the tenth commandment. um, If you're not familiar, very familiar with the ten commandments, go back and read them. The tenth commandment says you shall not covet. It's a, and then he begins to kind of uh, unpack it and extrapolate it. Moses does. He says you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Listen to this. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. That's connected to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not covet his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Coveting here, the point is, coveting is a kind of lust. It's an internal desire. Jesus connects internal lust for a neighbor's wife to the external guilt of adultery in the Sermon on the Mount. That's some of what he's doing here. Adultery is classically defined as sexual intercourse between a married person and a person who is not his or her spouse. That's the common understanding of what adultery is. But Jesus, he expands the common understanding of adultery to include in this passage in Matthew chapter five, lustful intent, lustful intent. He's not only focused on external behaviors, he's focusing on our internal desires. That's what he's honing in on. Now, if he's focusing on our internal desires and he's just called out lustful intent, if we're honest, I think everyone in the room has just been implicated. Myself first. If we're talking about lustful intent, everyone in the room has just been implicated. What is lust? In the biblical sense, to lust and to covet is to set one's desires on a thing, to set one's desire on a thing. So to look at a woman with lustful intent is to look at her in order to have her in the mind, in order to experience. And this goes both ways, from gender to gender here. But Jesus is using uh, men and their direction of lust uh, toward women here to look at a person in order, in order to have them in our mind, to experience them in our mind. You know what goes with all of that. Who of, us, who of us has not crossed this line, if even for a few seconds? Lust is not just looking at a person that we find attractive. That's not what lust is. Lust is sustained, willful, looking, fantasizing. You might say staring, whether with our eyes or whether with our minds as well. So a, a, a question for us around uh, just, just taking an inventory, self-assessment. Are you the wandering eye guy? Am I the wandering eye guy? We're in the, we're in the restaurant, we notice beauty, and our eyes just linger and stare at it. Are you the wandering eye girl? Maybe it's not with your eyes, but maybe it's with your mind. Maybe it's uh, you are, um, you're daydreaming of being in the arms of a person who is not your spouse. Hebrews 4.12 in the New Testament says, The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints, and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then the author goes on to say, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. A commentator named Dale Bruner says, to look at an attractive person can be a drive given in creation. So, to notice beauty. to, to just notice beauty can be a drive given to humanity in creation while things were still good. But to keep on looking, to stare, to set our eyes on a thing with lustful intent is a drive given from the fall of creation. The purpose of lust is to create end goal, or is rather to experience end goal satisfaction, if only in the mind. But the problem is, like anger, lust rarely stays in our minds, doesn't it? It rarely stays in our minds. We're not created, you guys. We're not created as disintegrated people. We're created as whole persons, right? So our minds and our bodies are interwoven. Our minds and our bodies work together. Lust does not only stay isolated in the mind, just like anger. It's on a bit of a pressure valve. It's always on the move within us. And where it typically moves from the the eyes and the mind is to the body. And so when we are in the grip of lust, things happen to our bodies. We feel things in our bodies. Our bodies do things. You know what I'm talking about. There is ripe opportunity in those moments to make terrible decisions as a result, isn't there? when we're in the grip of lust. And lust doesn't only affect the mind and the body, but according to Jesus, it's even more interior than that. It's actually started from somewhere before the mind, before the body, or or something that emanates, rather, from the center of who we are, from our control centers, from our hearts. I'm going to read at length here a quote from um, Timothy Keller. I want you to hang. It'll be up on a couple of slides on the screen behind me. Where this has been really helpful for me, Timothy Keller's words on kind of what the heart is and how it functions in life. Um, it's been helpful for me to help just distinguish what's going on within me. What is the heart? When the scriptures speak of the heart, what do they have in mind? And so he'll give us a little bit of background on on Greek thinking and modern thinking, but then he'll move us into a biblical mindset of what the heart is, what's coming out of the heart, what the heart does in our lives. He says this, For the Greeks and Romans, the great human struggle was between the mind, which they believed was resident in the soul, and our passions, which they believed were resident in the body. So the great struggle for Greeks was mind and body. And so if you wanted to achieve strength, courage, self-control, and wisdom, you learned to submit the emotions or the body to the dictates of reason or your mind. So quit doing that. You want to stop? Stop doing that. But for modern people, the great struggle is almost always the reverse. Listen to this. We believe our deepest feelings are who we really are, and so we must not repress or deny them. This is why in our culture, we're we're starting to define ourselves rather than who we are, we're starting, like who we actually are, we're starting to define ourselves by externals. We're starting to even define ourselves first by our sexuality. And so in the modern age, the great human struggle is actually between the emotions and a repressive society that so often stands in the way of self-expression and realization. But the Bible teaches neither of the above. It says the human struggle happens within a single entity, the human heart. The main human struggle is not between the heart and something else, but actually between forces that are tearing the human heart in differing directions. The great battle is deciding to what your heart's greatest love, hope, and trust will be directed. And so the heart, to English speakers, it means the emotions. But the Bible, in its language, also says that our thinking comes from the heart, as well as our will, as well as our plans, as well as our decisions And that confuses us, that all this would be wrapped up in the heart until we realize the Bible's view of human nature is revolutionary. It's different than what you find in other human systems of thought. The heart is actually used as a metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientation, our deepest commitments, the cockpit of our life, so to speak. It's what we trust the most. It's what we love and hope in, what we most treasure, what captures our imagination. And every human heart has an inclination Every human heart has something toward which it is directed. The direction of the heart then controls everything. You hear that? The the human heart directs everything. Our thinking, our feeling, and decisions, and actions. What we most love, we find reasonable, desirable, doable. Whatever we cherish in our hearts most controls the whole person. No wonder Jesus is so concerned about our hearts. No wonder God ignores outward matters and looks supremely at the heart. No wonder the prophet said that the goal of salvation is not mere compliance, the externals, but having the law of God written on the heart through spiritual rebirth. And then Keller finishes by saying, we always in the end do what the heart wants most. Tracking? Kind of? Proverbs 4.23, the author, Solomon, would say, guard your what? Heart. Why? It is the wellspring of life. Our whole life flows from what our heart is loving and directing toward. Lust in the heart is the strong, life-driving desire to have what doesn't yet belong to us. We lust for sexual gratification." We lust for money. We lust for power. We lust for revenge. We lust for material possessions. We lust for control. Lust is about self-gratification. Lust is a kind of ultimate selfishness. And so this is why Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent, he's already gone the whole way. He's already done in the center of who he is, what he hasn't yet gotten to do with his body. But given the right set of circumstances, given the right amount of secrecy, that might just be the case and what happens. Now, Jesus uses men as the example. I said this before, but women, this is about you too. Both genders lust after one another. It just comes out in different forms many times. Men may be uniquely responsible for driving the porn industry with our eyes, Women are, are likely responsible, uniquely driving the sales of, of, of smut, of things like Fifty Shades of Grey. It's dealing with the mind. It's about fantasy. It's accurate to say both are adultery, and the origins are not in the actions. The origins are in the heart of mankind, which brings me to my second point. There are consequences for our lust. Namely, slavery. When we've set our minds and desires on a thing, it exerts a strong degree of control over us. You know this. This is pretty, pretty basic. Like, when we start to obsess about something, when we start to stare at something in the mind, whether it's sexual or whether it's otherwise, that thing, whatever we've, whatever we've set our minds on it, it, it exerts a strong degree of control over us. It, okay, I might touch a nerve with this. I'm going to go here anyways on a whim. It's hard to buy a house right now. Any of you who have ever tried to buy a house but had but did not have your offer accepted, but had already set your mind and heart on the house, how did that feel? It hurt. It hurt because we were wooed by that. Now, it, rep- it wasn't necessarily a bad thing, but our, but our desires are so aimed at it in such a way that we um, experience a sort of decimation within when we don't get what we were looking for. That's just one example. When we set our minds and desires on a thing, it exerts a strong degree of control over us. We'll move money around in the bank accounts. We'll short on this. We'll, like We will jump through all kinds of hoops when we set our minds on a thing. When we are lust after something or someone, it enslaves us. Now, we're tempted to think that having true freedom is, is having that person or thing that we lust, that we lust after. Only then, when, I, when it actualizes, will I be free. But in reality, those desires actually make us functional slaves to the thing that we're desiring. They become objects of our worship. We are created to worship. We're worshiping in a million different directions. We sacrifice ourselves for them. We'll sacrifice ourselves to them. We'll be willing to die, a portion of ourselves to be willing to die to have these things. We'll be willing to be broken for them. We'll be willing to give up friendships, lifelong relationships for these things. We pay our time, our money, our freedom, and our allegiance to these things. Hear me, it's idolatry and God hates it. Why? Because these things cannot satisfy our hearts. Guard your heart, for from the heart flow the wellsprings of life. He is the author and creator of our lives. He is the one who we were made for. So when you and I go straying after someone or something else, he's jealous for us. Yes. He's jealous for us. Why? Because those things destroy You know it, you get it and it satisfies for a moment and then boom, the satisfaction is gone and then we turn our affections to something else and it's a game of whack-a-mole in our lives. It's what it feels like. Proverbs 5.23, the wisest man in history, Solomon, except for Jesus, he writes in Proverbs 5.23 to his son about the dangers of adultery, the dangers of lust coming from a guy who spoke truth, but was a, had thousands of lovers. His doctrine is solid. We should not throw it away. His life and practice did not accord with the sound words that he teaches his son right here. Let's be honest about these things. He says, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before, listen to this, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. The sin, the flesh within the person ensnare him. Look at this language. And he is held fast in the cords of his sin. This is like a net, You're held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for a lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Dale Bruner says, Pleasure, undisciplined, has enslaving power. And many a person experiences internal bondage to the presence, to the fantasy or opinion of attractive others. And so what Bruner then gets at is he says, Thus this command from Jesus to not look upon a woman with lustful intent. I'm using Jesus' language in, in the gendered norms here. This command from Jesus is a command seeking our liberation. It's a command. It's a word that is attempting to emancipate us from idols, from gods who cannot satisfy us. And so Jesus' response here is if the right eye causes us to sin, tear it out. He's using hyperbole. He's not asking you to maim yourself. In the same way that he says, get the log out of your own eye when you seek to take, and and before you take the speck out of another person's eye. He's using hyperbole here. If you gouge out your eye, you've still got another one. If you cut off your right hand, you've still got another one. But the hyperbole that Jesus is using, the strong language that he is using, does not cause us to miss the point or to take him less seriously. If we cannot stop looking at things on the internet, get rid of the phone. Change the phone. Take drastic action. I'm not joking. I can't have Netflix on my phone. I can't have Instagram on my phone. I can't have them. Why? Because I am consistently tripped up by what is offered there. I, Jared, can't have them. Maybe you're stronger than I am. Maybe you don't struggle with these things. But if they are tripping you up, cut it off. If I get my wife, if I get my phone, but I loo- lose my wife's heart and my soul, congrats. That's not a prize I want. I'm dead serious. I did not plan to be this passionate when I was preparing this message. But I have a strong sense that our lust, not just sexually, but our lust, is killing our vibrancy as the people of God. It's killing us. We don't have spiritual fervor because we're enslaved behind the scenes and not known. We are in trouble. And they're everyday things that have us by the ankles and will not let us go. How stupid it is to have our phone but to lose our wife's heart. I'll move on. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to lose a hand than lose our soul in hell. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3.6, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, your flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And then he gives a warning here. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's because of these things the wrath of God is coming. D.A. Carson says, Jesus threatens with hell all those who will not deal drastically with sin. Our generation, and this is a good word for us, our generation treats our sin lightly. Sin in our society is better thought of as an aberration or as an illness. It's something to be treated. It's not something to be condemned and repented of. And society views it as something that must not be suppressed for fear of psychological Damage, And then he goes on to say, I am painfully aware how sin ensnares and entangles and produces pathetic victims, but the victims are not passive victims. In Jesus' teaching, our sin leads to hell, and that is the ultimate reason why sin must be taken seriously, which leads us to a question. How do we break free? How do we take our sin seriously? How do we respond? There is remedy here there is remedy. And real freedom for you and I from our slavery requires drastic action. And it requires drastic action on two parts. The first was the part of Jesus Christ who came and gave his life for us. Him who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. He came and lived among us. We hated him. We yelled out, crucify him. He was crucified. Dealing with human sin requires drastic action. It cost him his life. It cost the father his son. And it requires drastic action on our part when we recognize the great love with which he has loved us with. And we want to serve and to follow him as our master, not our sin. The apostle Paul would write in Galatians chapter 5, he'd say, for freedom, Christ has set us free. It's for freedom that Christ has come to us. It's to liberate captives that he's come to us. And then Paul will say, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Our bondage to our sin is what threatens our freedom in Christ. Hear me when I say this. He's not a mythical figure. He's real. Satan hates you. He hates you. He despises you. He pretends to be your friend. He goads you to give in to temptation. He leads you to it, and then he mocks you for it. He laughs in your face, and he hates you. He wants you destroyed. He wants me destroyed. He wants this church scattered. He wants Jesus Christ and his name shamed. That's what he wants. And Jesus Christ was alive, by the way, teaches, I am the way and I am the truth, not the father of lies, the author of truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus would teach also in John chapter 8, you'll know the truth. When you know the truth, that very truth will begin to set you free. So Jesus Christ, the author of truth, helps us to see the traps and to walk around them, to avoid them, to walk away from them. So how do we walk away from the trap of lust, according to Jesus? Look at the text, verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Part of our remedy here for overcoming sin is as we look to the real Jesus, we also take drastic action. The remedy to our sin comes through active, ongoing, I'm using that word on purpose, active, ongoing repentance. Our talk is so cheap. Our talk is so cheap. How we live shows what we really believe. D.A. Carson, to quote him again, we deal drastically with our sin. We don't pamper it. We don't flirt with it. We don't nibble on it around the edges just to get a little taste of it. We are to hate it, to crush it, and to dig it out. Remember, too, as I'm using this, this word repentance, I know some, many of us have stories of the churches that we have grown up in, and repentance was a, a hard thing. It was external. It was legalistic. It caused us a significant amount of heartache and turmoil. But active gospel repentance, biblical repentance, that was the first word of Jesus's ministry. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Active repentance is a thing to be embraced, not a thing to be rejected. It's not the bad Catholic knuckle-busting religious repentance that we tend to think of. Gospel repentance does not mean self-punishment and beating yourself up, but gospel repentance is to embrace the grace of God lived for you, given to you, and to take action in following him. It's to receive Christ's invitation to communion with him, to access to him, to closeness with him. It's two two steps into the kingdom of God, which means it's two steps away from the world. It's two steps away from that which will destroy us. Think of of it like this. I said this at the beginning of our Matthew um, series um, when Jesus was preaching this word repentance. Um, uh, uh, A guy in our network in Acts 29 named Mark Halleck, he pastors in Colorado. He says, religious repentance says, I messed up, my dad is gonna kill me. But gospel repentance says, I messed up, I need to call my dad. You hear the difference? I need to call my dad. I'm safe with him. He's sent his son on my behalf. He's called me to himself. He set his love and affection on me before the foundation of the world, before anything that I did was either good or or bad or weighed in the eyes of anybody else. He set his love in love. Ephesians chapter one says to us, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. That's your status if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. He's for you, not against you. I messed up. I need to call my dad. And I'll add to this, I need to call my brothers and sisters too. Real repentance is to admit that we need help. We need to call dad and we need to do it on speakerphone. So there's some safe gospel people around us who are for us, who have our backs and can continue to have our backs. So many of us, hear me please, do not check out, we suffer at the hands of our idols because we fight them on our own. Which means we end up torn. We love them with one hand and we hate them with another hand. We love them with one eye and we hate them with our other eye. Real repentance takes drastic action. Here are some active steps of repentance that we can take. Where the Holy Spirit has your number this morning, and I pray that he does, he has mine. Honesty about the problem of our lust. It's grievous rebellion against God, not a series of mistakes. Are we honest about the gravity of our lust, of our sexual immorality? And then James, Jesus' brother in the New Testament, he gives us some remedy. He teaches the church to confess our sins in community through prayer with one another. Listen to this. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, look at what he says here. Therefore, confess your sins. Who? To who? To one another and to pray for one another. And here's the purpose clause, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. I wonder if so much of our prayer life is cut off at the knees because of our secret sin. This is where gospel community comes in. This is where it's so vital. So many of us, we're like logs near the fire, but not in the fire push the logs together with care in a fire what do you what do you get you get heat you get light you get warmth or or you get uh you get heat and light you spread and you scatter logs out of a fire the fire the heat the light they all go out but they appear alive for a time let's not fool ourselves we're each one log in our communities um when we get together around the scriptures, we ask a series of questions. And one of the questions is, what is causing you stress? The question, what is causing you stress, is meant to surface areas of pain, areas of weakness, areas of failure, unbelief, struggle within us in order to create opportunities for intercession with one another. For your brothers and sisters to bring you before the Lord and to pray for you. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And here's my last, the last thing I'll say, at at, at no length, actually, I'm not gonna give any length to this. I just want to like green light it. It's good and it's right. It's called therapy. We need Jesus and we need counseling. We need people particularly in areas of addiction, who are experienced and who have given years and years and hours upon hours to the craft of understanding that we are whole persons, not only mind, but physiology, biology, mind, neurology, our physicality, our emotional lives, our spiritual lives. We are whole persons. I have a counselor. Yes and amen. He has been a wonderful help to me, a wonderful help to me. And he has walked me toward health when I'm in seasons of unhealth. But I don't just see him when I'm in seasons of unhealth. I have a call with him every six weeks, like clockwork. We are talking. What's going on in your life? What's going on in your life? Talk to me about that. Talk to me about this. Talk to me about that. We need help. We need one another. We need prayer. We need confession. We need counseling. We need community. We need Christ. This is what he calls us to. Father, make your word living and active in our lives. Do what we can't do for ourselves. There are people in this room in slavery. May it not be so. Liberate. Please. Amen. Uh, Q and R. I don't know if you want to engage. Maybe some of you have engaged uh, in asking some questions. You've seen some of those questions up on the screen. There is uh, a little bit of lag time. So don't wait if you've got questions, if they're kind of firing in the middle of the message. It's okay, get out your phone. Type it in real quick, send it off, put it back in the pocket, keep it on silent. Like, it's all right. We're, we're big folks. We can do these things. We've got a couple of questions. We've got three, we've got three questions. Go ahead and throw them up. I'm not seeing anything on my monitor up here. So how does cutting out certain temptations change your heart? It seems that Jesus does not address the heart in this passage as a solution to lust, but instead seems to suggest only a change to actions. That's a good question, really good question. Here's what I'll say to it right off the top. How does cutting out certain temptations change your heart? It actually creates space. It creates space for him to recover your heart. While we're consistently giving ourselves to things that, um, to things that enslave us, you know this. When you're a slave to something, your ability to justify, your ability, your, your your level of obsession, all of that, it doesn't it doesn't shift at all. But we need to make a clean break. And so in this teaching right here, Jesus is not addressing the heart, but regularly Jesus will address the heart. And he'll say, out of the, out of the overflow of one's heart, the mouth speaks and the life is lived. So the cutting off of the temptation, the, the external boundaries create margin for us to be able to come back to a place of sobriety where we can hear him. That's what I'd say to that. Feel free to push back if you want. Next question? No, uh, Keller's explanation was really good. If you want, um, if you want that, I can let you come up here and take a uh, take a picture of it, or if you want the slide deck, um, there are some scripture references that that go beyond that go behind kind of what he's saying. Um, I also think that uh, Timothy Keller has done a significant amount of work here. So if you want to, uh, he's gonna do a far better job on this than I could in a two-minute segment. Um, What is the book? Counterfeit Gods is a book on idolatry by Timothy Keller. Pick it up. It's 150 pages. Uh, It's really helpful. Even if you Google Timothy Keller or Tim Keller, um, what is the heart it's gonna bring up a list of resources that you can search for. It's a good question, but I can't give it a treatment. How can I play a part in helping my spouse protect their, par- their hearts and minds from lust? Or is it even possible for me to do so? Yes, 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 it is. Ask. Ask the question. Ask them how they're doing. If they are obstinate, if they are justifying, if they are protecting some of that sin, do not keep it within the home. Come to your elders, your community, someone that you know that they are safe with and that you also feel safe with, and seek help. James will, uh, he'll go on to say, and I'll just end here. I read James chapter five about praying and confessing our sins with one another. But he goes on to say this. Elijah in verse 17 of James five was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. Now listen to what he says. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back his sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. We must intervene. We must intervene. I am issuing that directive in two minutes with very little nuance around your story. I want to acknowledge that. That there are relational dynamics at play within your own heart, within your own series of fears, within your own personal history, and also within your, your spouse's personal history. So I'm not just giving a blanket statement there, but I'm trying to give you general principles to approach this with wisdom, but ask the question ask the question, and if that is a dangerous question because of the explosions that occur in the home or because the stonewalling that occurs relationally, then that is absolutely where we need help. We need intervention. We need Matthew 18 stuff, not in a heavy-handed kind of way, but in a pleading for the good of our brothers and sisters kind of way. Father, um, these questions, these answers in particular, the questions are good, the answers may be inadequate, Bring your people to openness before you and before one another. Liberate us, please. Please, please. Amen.